We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel according to John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. I think that's really the key theme of the whole Gospel, that God in Christ has communicated with us in the most significant way possible. And that opens up a whole lot of questions. Uh, If we think about Jesus being God, who didn't just put on a flesh suit, but who became flesh and set up his tent among us. Uh, There are a lot of questions about that, and maybe as a Christian you've struggled to make sense of all of this, how the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God. Is Jesus somehow a little bit less than the rest of who God is? Is he somehow subordinate or, or, or inferior because of the fact that he took on flesh? Um, and if we try to peer too closely into the inner workings of God, you might not be surprised to find that you'll get a headache because God is far beyond us. Uh, He exceeds every frame of reference we have to evaluate him by. He exceeds the categories we are capable of constructing for knowledge. So, obviously, uh, he's going to be beyond our comprehension. But uh, the fact that he lived among us, assumed the weaknesses of human existence, and yet we say he is full God, Perhaps the most confusing thing of all, how did the immortal, eternal God die on a cross? There's something profoundly paradoxical about the incarnation. We're not going to unravel all of the mysteries of the Godhead today. I'm glad, you're probably glad to know that, but... Uh, Jesus does dive into some points about who God is that I think we need to be aware of, and we're going to be dealing with kind of some of the inner workings of God in the passage we're looking at today. Specifically, how is God going about granting life and condemnation to human beings? So let's consider what Jesus had to say about that. We're in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. I've titled today's message, Judgment and Life. And really, all of chapter 5 of John is kind of one thing. It's one event, one story. There's kind of a narrative portion that I took two sermons to cover, and then there's Jesus talking about it that I'm going to divide into two more sermons. So we're getting four sermons out of one story, and I'm sure you're glad about that, because if I tried to do it all in one sermon, we'd, we would still be here from last week. Um, so I, we're, we're kind of breaking it apart, but just understand that the whole story kind of hangs together, that it all starts with Jesus encountering this man at the pool of Bethzatha, and uh, he's crippled, uh, he's uh, paralyzed, and unable to even make his way to the pool. And uh, he's a man, uh, as the story unfolds, we find out that he's a man that for some reason, Jesus seems to indicate that his uh, infirmity was brought on by sin. Because after he heals him, he says, sin no more that something worse won't happen to you. And I think when he says something worse, he's Uh, referring to the discussion we're entering into today, the idea of condemnation and judgment for condemnation that that, uh, could await us. So there is something even worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. 
Uh, and uh, so this is uh, a wicked man who has made a mess of his life, who when Jesus asks him, do you want to be well, shows no faith, doesn't ask Jesus for help, just expresses absolute hopelessness. I can't, there's no way, nobody is going to help me get into the water when it's stirred and my hopes of being healed are, are uh, gone. Even so, Jesus healed him. He said, pick up your cot, walk, take it with you. And immediately God did an amazing miracle. Somebody who had not used his legs for 38 years suddenly without any rehabilitation was able to stand up on strong legs and pick up his cot and go. And it's only at that point in the story that John tells us, by the way, this happened on a Saturday, on a Sabbath and then we get into the whole discussion we were looking at last week where the religious experts say, wait a minute, the rabbis have made it very clear that Sabbath, God's day of rest, you can't do any medical procedures that are not life-saving on Sabbath. Unless somebody is in danger of dying, tell them to come back Sunday. And this man was in no danger of dying. The rabbis would have insisted Jesus wait not only that, but Jesus told him, take your cot and go. And the rabbis had said, you cannot take any object from one domain and move it into another. You can move something inside your house, but you can't take it outside of your house. Uh, and you can't take something from the pool and take it to your house. That's forbidden. And we got last week into this whole discussion about who gives Jesus the right. And here's what Jesus said in response to that. We saw this last week. My father's working, so I'm working. And they rightly understood that he was claiming to be equal with God. And therefore, rather than falling on their faces, decided we can't just oppose him, we need to kill him. That's where we left it off last week. And Jesus in the next, uh, today's sermon and next week's, is going to kind of unpack all of that. That's kind of the background for this whole discussion. Just who is Jesus? And, and when he makes these kinds of claims that no human being should be able to make, how come in Jesus' case, he's not lying and he's not exaggerating and he's not being hyperbolic, he's just telling us the flat-out truth of matters? Well, we need to start to understand just who Jesus is. So we're working on this, and, and let's start with verse... Uh, Verse 19, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I tell you all, the Son is not able to do anything from himself unless he should see the Father doing something. For whatever things he might do, these things the Son is also likewise doing. So this discussion, you healed somebody on Sabbath, God the Father forbids that we work on Sabbath and that we instruct others to carry things around on Sabbath. You did both of those things. He says, well, my father's working on Sabbath. I'm working on Sabbath. Let me dig deeper into what I'm saying, Jesus says. And he prefaces this with truly, truly, amen, amen. That's an idiom. And it's the way of saying with all certainty, truly, truly, truthfully, this is the God's honest truth of the matter. So when Jesus says this, understand that whatever follows that is not something you want to dismiss lightly. 
It's a matter of some importance, and Jesus is telling us, you want to know the truth of the matter about something? Let me give it to you. So what is this great truth? The son is not able to do anything from himself unless he should see the father doing something. Clearly, that's not how it works for us. I can clearly do all kinds of stuff that the father is not interested in me doing. I can clearly do things that God does not want me doing. I do it all the time. You do too. But Jesus says, I am incapable of doing anything but what I see the Father doing. Now, here's the weird thing about the incarnation. God the Son assumed for a brief period the the limitations. Now, he could have called it off at any moment and drawn back to himself the full attributes of divinity that were his but for purposes of the incarnation he limited himself to human existence so that if he wanted to know the father's will he had to carve out time and go pray and ask the father just like you and me when he uh, walked too far he got tired when he didn't drink he got thirsty when you cut him he bled Full humanity. So, in his case, he had to observe and pay attention to know what the Father was up to, but he says, here's what you need to know about me. I cannot do anything but what the Father is up to. I'm not like you in that sense. You can operate in opposition to the Father. You can sin, you can do all these things. I cannot do a single thing except what the Father is revealing to me to do because I am full God. So nothing I do, and not just nothing I choose to do, I cannot do anything but what God the Father is wanting done. So... This argument about Jesus and his legitimacy for healing on Sabbath and giving instructions that contradict the rabbi's interpretations of Scripture, his authority to break that. Where does that come from? Well, Jesus claims it ontologically, in the very essence of who he is. He is God and nothing else. He cannot operate without it being fully within the will of the Father. So if you have a problem with Jesus doing this, you have a problem with God doing this. Whatever things he might do, these things the Son is also likewise doing. Everything Jesus did was the physical activity of God Almighty on earth in human form. Let's keep reading. For the Father loves the Son, and he shows to him all the things that he is doing. And he will show greater works than these to him, so that you might marvel. For just as the Father raises up the dead and makes them alive, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. Within the Godhead there is community, Father, Spirit, Son, 
And there is loving community within the Godhead. And it's a mystery to us because we don't function this way. But God is three in one. And there is no separating them out. There's no way for Jesus to act without the Father and Spirit being involved in that. And that being the activity of God. But there is this community of love. Some people think that God created because he was lonely. God didn't need creation. He was perfect. In, he, had, he enjoyed perfect communion within his own nature. In fact, the, the idea that there is such a thing as community is, is a, a thing God wove into creation because that is the nature of who he is. The reason we are communal beings is that God made us in his image and likeness. But he didn't need us. It was an act of gracious generosity to create a whole cosmos capable of receiving his goodness. The Father loves the Son and shows to him all the things that he is doing. Everything God the Father is up to, he's revealing to the Son, and through the Son, revealing it to us. And he will show greater works than these to him, so that you might marvel. Everything Jesus did was God communicating with us, directly. Not through a prophet. It was God himself speaking and touching and acting And and Jesus says, you've been impressed by the things I've done. I turned water into wine. I just healed this paralytic of 38 years. Sent him walking instantly. I've done these amazing things you've seen. You you ain't seen nothing yet. He's going to reveal greater works in me than you've seen thus far. And what is he talking about? Well, he talks about life. The power of life. Just as the Father raises up the dead and makes them alive, and I believe this is an oblique reference to Genesis, the creation of man, when God took lifeless dust and formed it into the shape of a clay figure that was as lifeless as it had been before it was shaped, and then breathed life into this dead piece of dirt so that it became a living soul. The Father has this ability to take what is dead and make it alive. Jesus says, that's exactly what I do. I, the Son, give life to whomever I will. Notice Jesus doesn't say what any of the prophets would have said. Uh, God might use me to bring somebody back from the dead. There are very few occasions, but there are a handful of occasions in the Bible where some prophet God used to bring somebody back to life after they died. Now, it wasn't immortality. It was just revivification. But uh, that's still a very impressive thing to see happen. But no prophet would have claimed to be able to do this to anybody he willy-nilly chooses to. He had to plead with God and God had to be in agreement and God would have to respond to the request with a resuscitation. Jesus is claiming a lot more than that. He says he can give life to anybody he pleases. He has the exact same power of the creator God who first breathed the breath of life into Adam. Jesus is saying, that's what I can do. 
You think you're, you're impressed by these other things I've done? Wait till I start breathing life into the dead. Verse 22, for the Father does not even judge anyone, but has given all the judgment to the Son, so that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son is not honoring the Father who sent him. One more thing he talks about. I think the Jews in his day were very aware that God had talked about judging humankind, that we all answer to God. But you know what Jesus says? Within the Godhead, within the council of the Godhead, of the Trinity, it has been determined by the Father that he will not be the aspect of who God is upon whom will fall the judgment of humankind. It will fall to the Son. Why? I can think of several reasons for that. The Son was the aspect of who God is, the the person of the Trinity of God who took on flesh and came here to effect the rescue of creation from sin and death in his willing death on the cross. And because he had life in himself when he hung on that cross, he could have refused to die. He could have claimed immortality. He could have called down legions of angels to get him off the cross. He had to choose to die. He says in John, no man takes my life, I lay it down. He had this ability in himself. So uh, he, he says, the father is not the one judging, it's the son because. The son is the means through which God has made possible the rescue of creation and humankind from sin. And because, as uh, the author of Hebrews points out, through the process of suffering he endured, he became the perfect author of salvation. There was no other way than the incarnation and the many sufferings leading to the cross for Jesus to become the perfect, in Hebrews, the perfect intercessor on our behalf. But in John, the perfect God who is alone in the right position to judge every one of us. We cannot look to Jesus and say, you don't understand. You don't know what it's like to be betrayed by somebody you love. You don't know what it's like to be tired, to be bone weary. You don't know what it's like to be hungry or thirsty. We can't say that to the son. He knows every bit of it. And it's right that judgment falls to him. Also, The reason the Father has arranged it this way, so that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And this is the big problem of Jesus' opponents. They claim to honor the Father. They want to kill Jesus. Do you see the problem? Jesus says, you cannot reject me and honor God. You can't. You can't. Turn away from me and say, I'm going to honor God, but not Jesus. That can't happen. Now, it is possible to not know who Jesus is 
and have a genuine faith in the God who created everything. That's how Abraham was saved. That's how Moses was saved. That's how David and all the prophets of the Old Testament were saved. They didn't know Jesus. He hadn't come. They didn't have the gospels like we do. But they knew the God who reached out to them. And they knew that this God was going to send someone who would be the Prince of Peace, who would be King of Kings, and who would make all things right. And one way or another, this God who gave them life would send something that would make everything right. So in faith, they looked forward to Jesus, even though they didn't know him. And they had faith in the one God. What can't happen is now that Jesus has come, you can't say, I will believe in Allah, but not Jesus. If you have genuine faith in the creator God, then the creator God is going to say to you, you want to know who I am? Look at Jesus. We cannot reject Jesus and have God. And this is the lie we are told constantly in our culture today, that it really doesn't matter what you call God. I call him Allah, you call him this, you call him the other. Unless you're calling God Jesus, you're not worshiping God. Now, conceivably, you live out in the boonies somewhere. You've no contact with anything. You have never heard the gospel, never heard of Jesus. I think you can have faith like Abraham had. But if that's the faith you have and a missionary shows up and tells you about Jesus, guess what's going to happen? You're going to say, I've been waiting my whole life to learn about this. This is the God I know. I want to know more. But we can't throw Jesus out. If we want to honor the Father, we must honor Jesus. There is no other way. I have a question from these verses. Jesus said that he shared the divine attributes of God the Father. Why can we not say that we believe in and honor God while rejecting Jesus as God? Let's keep reading in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you all that the one who hears my word and believes the one who sent me has eternal life. And he does not enter into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Jesus here uh, is going to be kind of putting on opposite sides of the coin here. Uh, Life, eternal life, and judgment. So I think by judgment, he doesn't just mean judgment. In fact, some translators just translate that condemnation. He means an unfavorable judgment, a judgment of condemnation. So on the one hand, we have eternal life. On the other hand, we have being rejected and condemned by God Almighty. Surely, you can figure out that that is a very bad thing to have happen. Okay, so he says, and again, he prefaces this with truly, truly. I'm telling you the God's honest truth. This is a a seriously important and true thing. The one who hears my word and believes the one who sent me has eternal life. He just said earlier, the son gives life to whomever he wills. And you might say, well, based on what criteria, son, do you dole out eternal life? Well, he tells us. 
the one who hears my word and believes the one who sent me. Because to believe Jesus and take him at his word is to believe in the one who sent him. He is the same God. That person who puts his faith in Jesus has eternal life. And he does not enter into judgment. Now, there are many passages that indicate that even believers, even those who have put their faith in Jesus, will uh, face a judgment from God. So I don't think he just means judgment. I think he means a guilty verdict at judgment. Condemnation. But has passed out of death into life. Again, truly Truly, verse 25, I say to you all that an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, a huge, profound truth. He says that the the time is fast approaching. In fact, guess what? It's already here. It's happening right now. The dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and anyone who hears is going to live. This is already happening when Jesus speaks these words. Now, Jesus will use this in two senses. This is the first sense of uh, the dead being people who are dead to, to God, dead in sin and trespasses, under the power of sin and death and hopeless to do anything about it, condemned before God, and rightly so, in that condition of spiritual death, of unlife when it comes to God. They hear his voice. And those who hear, those who heed, will live. Jesus is talking about that posse of disciples around him. Those guys, he showed up one day and said, follow me. And they left everything behind and began to follow Jesus. And they have begun, Jesus is explaining to them what they have entered into. They have begun the process of eternal life already. They have already passed from death to life the moment they put their faith, their eyes on Jesus. Just as the Father has life in himself, so also he gave to the Son to have life in himself. God alone can say, I have life in myself. My existence depends on absolutely no one and no thing else. Nothing else in all creation can say that. Everything else that exists is, uh, participates in contingent existence. We exist so long as God so wills it. I live so long as God wills for me to have the gift of life. I can't, I didn't give it to myself, and I can't just hang on to it because I want to. I have it as long as God chooses, but God has life in himself. And Jesus is saying, the same is true of myself. My life is not a gift from the Father. I have existence in and of myself. uh, And because of the Father and my eternal union, I have life in myself in the same manner that he does. Verse 27, and he gave him authority to make judgment because he is son of man. 
This is the only occurrence in the New Testament of son of man without the definite article. He doesn't just say he is the son of man. He just says son of man. He's, he's using it as a descriptor. So he's throughout this passage been talking about himself as son of God, which is a way of saying I am God. But son of man says I am also man. Because he is the person in the Trinity who entered into the incarnation and effected by his death on the cross rescue of creation from sin and death. Because of that, all authority to make judgment lies in his hands. Which is why what we make of Jesus is the only thing in human life that matters in the grand scheme of things. I have a question from these verses. Jesus said the reason he came to speak to us was so that we could believe and receive eternal life that has already begun. How have you experienced life as a gift from God as a result of faith in Jesus? Let's continue in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those having done good into a resurrection of life, but those having accomplished what is base into a resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, don't, don't be amazed. And now he says, an hour is coming, but he doesn't say this time, and is already here. So this time he is talking about something that has not yet happened, and I believe has not yet happened to this date. There is a moment when everyone who is in a tomb is going to hear his voice. I can't read that without thinking that John already had in mind what he was going to do in chapter 11. When Lazarus had been in the tomb four days and Jesus walked up to it and called him and he got up. Jesus in that resurrection or in that resuscitation was giving an image, a sign of what is going to happen to every single human being at some moment. He is going to call and you are going to rise and give answer. This is the voice we will all answer to. It doesn't matter what you do in this life. It doesn't matter how far you try to run from Jesus. When that day comes and he calls out, you're going to pop right out and you're going to stand before him and give answer. We will all be raised to face him. Those who have done good into a resurrection of life. And it may seem here that this is the standard thing, you know, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. We need to pay attention, though, to how John in his gospel defines the good work the Father wants from us. Jesus, as Point Blake asked that question in the gospel of John, what good work does the Father want from us? And this is what Jesus said. The good work the Father wants from you is that you believe the one he sent. So, in John's gospel, I think we need to understand those doing good, it's not just people doing good things and somehow accumulating some merit before God, but who have done the good as opposed to the bad, which is ultimately you are either going to claim your creator and redeemer as Lord and King and God, or you are not. Those who have chosen that good will enjoy a resurrection of life. 
Those who have accomplished what is base and really anything other than Jesus is garbage. It's pointless. It's worthless. You may think of it as glorious and your career is this wonderful thing or this uh, thing you're pursuing in life or this philosophy you're so enamored with. You may think all of this is really wonderful and glorious and spectacular, but at that day it will become obvious what you were pursuing if it wasn't Jesus was just one more of the base things in creation that are not worthy of human devotion. Those who have accomplished what is base will be raised to face judgment. The terms he's used, death, condemnation, we will be raised. Those uh, who have not believed in Jesus will face that. Verse 30, I am not able to do anything from myself. Again, we can't separate out Jesus from God. He can't operate on his own. Just as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is right. Because I am not seeking my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. So even though he's been making this big emphasis, I am the center, the hinge, uh, the, the axle upon which the wheel of judgment spins. I am the center of it all. That doesn't mean that somehow the Father and Holy Spirit are cut out of this. I cannot judge without it being also the judgment of the one who sent me. And I'm not seeking my will as something separate from the will of the Father. My judgment is going to be the perfect judgment of God Almighty, informed by the Incarnation. I have a final question. Jesus described a day of judgment for all who have lived and died. How does this judgment affect the way in which you live your life? Jesus is God. Come to us in the most intimate way possible. God Almighty emptied himself of glory and took on our form, the shape of a servant. He partook in our weaknesses, our frailty, and he came to rescue us from sin's power, to free us and all creation with us from death. What God demands of us is simple. Believe in the one he sent. Believe in Jesus. Because he came to bring to fruition God's plan for the redemption of the cosmos, he is the key to our existence. He's going to judge every human who ever drew breath. And we will answer based on what we have done with the God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus. If you would honor God, you must claim Jesus as Lord. There's no other way. There is no other God to choose. He is the Eternal God, come to rescue you. Let me say a word of prayer. God, thank you for coming to us, for not leaving us bound by sin and death, hopeless, helpless. Thank you for coming to give us life.
life abundant now and eternal once that day arrives. God, we're awed at your generosity and your kindness to us. Give us hearts that are not distracted by the baser things of this world. Give us hearts that are centered on you, Jesus, in love with you, Jesus, and that look nowhere else. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.